All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, and I'm your host, and this is episode 11. Today, I'm going to be talking all about diets. That's everyone's favorite word, diet. If you felt chills run down your spine and a small sense of horror, then you've probably done a diet or two in your life. Okay, but I don't necessarily want to talk about diets today. I want to talk about the history of diets and how those have kind of evolved throughout time. So how did this all start? Well, I'm sitting there thinking about what I could talk about this week on the podcast. And I was researching a recipe that I'm going to be cooking later in the week. And when I was researching this, I came across a website where the the lady writing the article, she said, this week I'm going to make a dessert. It's my cheat day and I've been dieting and I've been doing so good and I'm finally going to cheat. She said, I've been eating healthy. I've been, I haven't been eating dairy. I haven't been eating wheat. I haven't been eating carbs, protein. I'm thinking, what have you been eating? And I think we've all been there at some point, or at least we know someone that's been there at some point where we're so desperate to shed a few pounds that we're going to latch on to any fad diet that comes along. Anything promising a quick solution to the weight gain problem that we're experiencing. Now, this is a topic that I am incredibly passionate about. I absolutely love food. One of my favorite things on the planet is going out to different restaurants and exploring what's in town, and particularly with international flavors. I mean, there's so many different cuisines that we have access to today that we didn't have access to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so options are everywhere. And the last thing that I want to do is restrict any of these delicious tasty morsels of food from my diet. So I've learned over the years that the different diets that I've done in my life, the different fad diets that I've done in my life, they never last. One diet will say, you can't have carbs. And then everything that I crave from then on moving forward is carbs. That's all I want. That's all I can think about. I obsess over it. And it drives me crazy. So a week or two after starting a diet, I fall off the wagon and then give up because, let's face it, I love my pizza. And uh, generally, I do that yo-yo effect where I do a diet, fall off, go crazy for a few weeks, hop back on something, fall off, go crazy for a few weeks. And that's not a healthy or sane approach, but that's the cycle that a lot of Americans are stuck in. And uh, for me, at this point, I have a more healthy relationship with food. I take a more moderate approach. Nothing's off limits, and I end up happier and more satisfied. Because nothing is off limits. I don't have that forbidden fruit syndrome where if they say I can't eat pizza, then all I want to do is eat some darn pizza. (laughs) But this whole thing got me thinking. And if you couldn't tell, it's a topic that I'm just incredibly passionate about, and I can stand on this soapbox forever. So I thought that there couldn't be a better episode 
for this week's podcast. But again, because this is Toasty Kettle, we aren't going to talk about diets today. I'm going to talk about the history of dieting. In researching this topic, an interesting point that kept coming up is that our ancestors really weren't overly concerned with dieting. So dieting is a a fairly recent phenomenon. For people in the past, they were more focused on where's my food going to come from? How can I make sure that I have enough to eat? And how can I avoid starving this winter? They definitely weren't thinking, how many carbs can I cut from this meal? Or make sure I'm eating more fat on the next meal. They were just happy to eat something and took what they got. However, today, America is as obese and unhealthy as ever. And that's with the weight loss market being worth over $66 billion. So clearly we're stuck on this mindset of the next diet is going to be my solution and I'm going to pay a bunch of money and join some program, eat some fancy food, buy a book, and end up with the same results and keep repeating that cycle. The industry counts on that. That's where they make their money. Now, the history of dieting is a very vast and broad topic, and I'm not, I'm not claiming to have a comprehensive list here or breakdown of different diets in the past. So if this is something that's in your wheelhouse, you might find that I miss a diet or two, but I decided instead to focus on a few of the more interesting tidbits. So with that out of the way, let's dive on into the history. So to start, we're going to go to the 1500s with a man named Luigi Cornaro. And again, I apologize if I butcher names because there are some of these names from different countries where I'm just clueless on how to pronounce them. But uh, Luigi was a man who started to have problems with his health in his late 30s. And with, with him and his situation, his doctors didn't give him much time to live. So what did he do? Well, he changed his lifestyle with food and ended up living until he was 102 years old. Now, some records that I read said that he lived to 99, some said 103, but the consensus out there is that 102 years old was his age. And what makes his experience fascinating and why we even care about it today is that he wrote it down. He wrote a book about it. So this is in essence, one of the very first diet books, diet and lifestyle books to ever really hit the market. So I wanted to share just a brief summary of his book. Having reached the age of 35, the effects of his hitherto intemperate life began to show themselves. As Cronaro himself wrote, my stomach became disordered and I suffered pain from colic and gout attended by that which was yet worse, an almost continual slow fever, a stomach generally out of order and a perpetual thirst. From these miseries, the only delivery I had to hope for was death. So again, this was happening in his late 30s and it sounds like a miserable existence. Not for the first time, so he tells us, he saw it medical relief, and luckily for himself, he found men of sense who insisted that his only remedy lay in renouncing his old ways of life. He was urged to restrict his diet, both solid and liquid, to that usually prescribed to sick people, and to use even that as sparingly as possible. On former occasions, when offered his this sensible advice, he had rejected it with impatience, but now his physicians added that if he did not 
at once adapt this course of strict living. There was no help for him, and he must resign himself to an early death. This was the turning point. Cornaro gradually reduced his diet to a daily allowance of 12 ounces of solid food and 14 ounces of wine. In a few days' time, he began to perceive that his shattered health was on the road to restoration, and continuing this course in less than one year, he found himself entirely freed from all his complaints. The change wrought was not only physical, but also psychical. Cornaro avowed that in his youth, he had been of a hasty and passionate temper, but by his life of strict sobriety, he secured so complete a mastery over himself that he won the esteem of all who knew him. Cornaro became so habituated to this meager fare that an increase of two ounces of food and two ounces of wine per day proved nearly fatal to him. Of course, Luigi made a dramatic change to his lifestyle. He attributed his longevity to his change in lifestyle. History has so many examples of this type of dieting advice. Get control of your out-of-control lifestyle and you'll be on the road to better health. Luigi, he was able to change his lifestyle in such a way that gave him greater comfort and longevity and less chronic illness and physical discomfort for the remaining almost 70 years of his life. So that was something that was fascinating to me. When I started researching dieting, I didn't think I'd find anything that reached back into the 1500s. But when it comes to celebrities influencing diets, that also started fairly early. In the early 1800s, Lord Byron was terrified of becoming fat. He thought that this would result in lethargy and stupidity. Some historians believe that he battled anorexia nervosa. To keep his weight down, he ate almost exclusively biscuits and soda water, and he occasionally enjoyed potatoes drenched in vinegar. He once told friends that he would rather not exist than be large. He would wear up to six coats while exercising in an attempt to sweat out excess water. In 1816, Lord Byron made it through the day eating only a slice of bread and cup of tea for breakfast, and then for dinner, vegetables and seltzer water mixed with a bit of wine, and then of course, throughout the day, he smoked cigars to curb his appetite. In 1818, his worst fears were realized. A visiting friend wrote that the poet had become pale, bloated, and sallow. He had grown very fat, his shoulders broad and round, and the knuckles of his hands were lost in fat. When I read that, I thought, what a friend. Man, he knows that Lord Byron has to have some anxiety about his physical appearance. And what does he do? He goes and publishes that I've just seen Lord Byron and he is, wow, worst fears have been realized. He's ginormous. So in response to that, Lord Byron restricted himself to a menu of red cabbage and cider. His apple cider vinegar and water concoction became a very popular way to drop pounds in 1820. And unsurprisingly, he died young at the age of 36. Many historians believe that his early death was to be blamed on the ups and downs of his diet, wearing his body out prematurely. So now moving on. In 1863, William Banting wrote a pamphlet about a diet that he had been doing. And this pamphlet was called 
letter on corpulence addressed to the public, and it detailed how he had lost 50 pounds in a year. He lost the weight by giving up bread, butter, milk, sugar, beer, and potatoes. Instead, he ate a lot of meat. It didn't take long for this pamphlet to find its way across the Atlantic Ocean, and it became incredibly popular here in America. So much so that banting became a slang term for dieting. The next one here, for me, I'm a big textural eater. I find a lot of enjoyment in the different textures in food. And a lot of times, something can have an amazing flavor, and I won't like it simply because of a texture being weird or off to me. So I'm going to turn to Fletcherism. Fletcherism was a diet that was popular in 1895 to 1919. And this wasn't so much a diet as it was a form or way, a method of eating. Horace Fletcher was a businessman and a self-taught nutritionist. So with that pedigree, you know this is going to be good. Fletcher theorized that America's problem with dietary health and bad dental hygiene could be explained by one simple fact. Americans weren't chewing enough. Fletcher said that for ideal health, people should chew food until it becomes liquid in their mouths. People who practice Fletcherism swore it would help you lose weight, keep your teeth clean and healthy, and save you money on food you'd have otherwise wasted from rushed and careless eating. Followers of this plan also said you should only eat when you're really, really hungry and never if your emotions are running high. Now, this actually makes a lot of sense. Today, we might phrase this differently. Slow down eating your food and don't emotionally eat. However, I can't get past the idea of chewing my food until it's liquid and then trying to stomach that. I think they took it too far. So now I'm going to talk about the drinking man's diet. This became popular in 1964. Robert Cameron in San Francisco wrote a pamphlet about how alcohol and gourmet food could contribute to weight loss. He sold that pamphlet for $1 and within two years had sold 2 million copies. So not a, not a bad way to make a quick buck. This was an Atkins-esque take on eating. He focused on rich country club mills centered around steak, fish, French sauces, and cheese. He called this man-type food and made sure to incorporate a healthy amount of alcohol daily. Now, you might, you might look at that and think, how on earth did this man lose weight, much less live a long life? But he lived to be 98 years old. And I think that's a diet that a lot of people could get behind. I'm not going to vouch that it's something that is healthy or should be attempted. Now I want to do a quick dive into a timeline of different diets that came up over the years, as well as some diet products that came to market over the years. So 1830, Graham's diet. Although inventing Graham crackers was his only legacy, Sylvester Graham recognized the importance of whole grains and the association of diet and disease before it was well-researched. He also promoted a raw foods, vegetarian-based diet that was lower in salt and fat. So that sounds like some of those different diets that you might hear if you go to the doctor and they're going to recommend a weight loss regimen for you, that that could likely be something that they say. 
focus on high quality ingredients and you'll end up losing some weight. 1903, Laparl Obesity Soap that never fails to reduce flesh was selling at a pricey $1 a bar. So this was a soap that they promised if you wash with this soap, you'll literally wash the pounds off your body. Now, $1 in 1903 is roughly $28 today. So $28 for this bar of soap that promises weight loss. In 1917, calorie counting became popular when Lulu Hunt Peters introduced calorie counting in her book, Diet and Health, with the key to calories. She provides formulas and targets to help with weight management, along with a listing of the calorie content of various foods. In 1925, the Lucky Strike cigarette brand had a marketing campaign targeted towards women that if you would reach for one of their cigarettes instead of reaching for a sweet, then you would lose weight. They were touting the appetite-suppressing effects of nicotine. In 1928, the Inuit meat diet came about, and this focused on eating caribou, raw fish, and whale blubber, and it was a very high-fat, low-carb diet which originated from Eskimos and followed the explorations of Wilhelmur Stephenson. In 1930, the hay diet came about. This was one of the early diets based on the pH of foods, which did not allow carbohydrates and proteins to be eaten at the same meal. This food-combining diet was developed by Dr. William Howard Hay, and it became so popular that some restaurants served meals based on this system of eating. In 1930, Dr. Stoll's Diet Aid hit the market. This was one of the first liquid protein diet shakes to ever be released for the public. These meal replacements were marketed towards women and made available at beauty parlors. In the 1950s, the cabbage soup diet became popular, promising you could lose 10 to 15 pounds in a week just by eating cabbage soup. 1960 brought about the Zen macrobiotic diet. This was created by a Japanese philosopher, George Osawa, and based on the principles of yin and yang, foods to help maintain the body's balance. It was once called the brown rice diet due to whole grains providing 50 to 60% of daily calories. Refined and processed foods were discouraged on that diet as were certain cooking techniques and utensils. In 1963, Weight Watchers was founded by Jean Niedich, an overweight housewife obsessed with cookies. And through the years, this one kept coming up in the research again and again and again with the different celebrities that had lost X number of pounds doing Weight Watchers. So that's been one of the keys to their marketing strategy is highlighting and emphasizing different celebrities that have used their plan over the years. In 1970, we had the Sleeping Beauty diet involving sedation. With this diet, individuals were heavily sedated for several days, therefore reducing their food intake. The pills used to promote sleep were considered unsafe, and the amount of weight loss was minimal. 1975, a Florida doctor develops the cookie diet using a special cookie made with a blend of amino acids. 1977, SlimFast launches, quickly becoming 
a popular mill replacement, and that one is still around today. 1979 Dexatrim, which was a diet drug containing, ooh, I'm going to butcher this one, <laughs> phenylpropanolamine, PPA for short, <laughs> appears on drugstore shelves. Its formula changed after PPA was linked to an increased risk of stroke in the early 2000s. 1980s, a popular appetite-suppressing candy called AIDS, A-Y-D-S, was taken off the market after the AIDS crisis hits. So that was some unfortunate branding that coincided with the AIDS crisis hitting. 1985, Harvey and Marilyn Diamond published Fit for Life, which prohibits complex carbs and protein from being eaten during the same meal. 1987, actress Elizabeth Taylor advises dieters to eat veggies and dip each day at 3 p.m. I like the approximate time on that one. Approximately 3 p.m., eat your veggies and dip. 1992, Robert C. Atkins launches his Atkins diet promoting low-carb and high-protein. 1994, the Guide to Nutrition Labeling and Education Act was signed, and this required nutrition labels to be posted on nearly all packaging. That one surprised me. I didn't realize that that was so recent that uh, they brought that into into effect. 1995, the Zone Diet was born, which calls for a specific ratio of carbs, fat, and protein at each meal. That began to attract celebrity fans. In the year 2000, the Raw Foods Diet came around. That was focused on uncooked, unprocessed, organic foods. And it's similar to a a vegan diet, emphasizing raw fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and sprouted grains. Some have even been known to include raw meats or fish or unpasteurized milk products, but of course none of these are recommended because of food safety risks. In 2003, a Miami doctor, Arthur Agatston, launched the South Beach Diet, which was believed to be a more moderate version of the Atkins Diet. 2004, we have the Coconut Diet, Fats were replaced with coconut oil while following four different phases. Overall, the diet is low in variety and has been described as an elimination diet due to restricting adequate amounts of healthful foods. In 2004, the FDA banned sale of diet drugs and supplements containing ephedra after it was linked to heart attacks. In late 2004, The Biggest Loser made its television debut and turned weight loss into a reality show. And a great reality show, might I add. Love Biggest Loser. 2006 brought us the maple syrup diet, also called Master Cleanse Diet, which featured a special syrup lemon drink. And it was promoted by numerous celebrities, basically a 10-day liquid fast that restricts calories causing the body to lose water and lean body mass, not necessarily fat. 2007, Ali hits the market, and this was a non-prescription drug taken with meals to keep your body from absorbing some of the food that you eat. 2008, you have the banana diet. This plan consisted of bananas plus room temperature water for breakfast, followed by two regular meals and no eating after 8 p.m. 
the creator of this diet is from Japan, so meals consisting of vegetables and rice are recommended, along with one snack in the afternoon, but no sweets or dairy products. As with other fad diets, it lacks variety and restricts certain food groups. 2010, you have the baby food diet. The basic plan includes 14 jars of baby food a day, along with an optional adult dinner. While the choices of baby food are numerous, there's a lack of certain nutrients required by adults. Other concerns cited include dislike of the pureed texture and limiting filling of fullness. Now this one, this one made me laugh a little bit because I had one of those experiences when I was growing up where my sister was babysitting and she forced me to eat some baby food. And that was a traumatizing experience. So I think personally with the baby food diet, that's a hard pass for me. 2012, the wheat-free diet became popular. It's another version of a high-protein, low-carb diet, only it restricts many food, not just wheat, due to their effect on blood sugar. As a result, the food choices were limited, which can make it difficult to follow. Now, of course, this isn't a comprehensive list of every single diet or every single diet product to ever hit the market. But... What this showed me is that we have very few new ideas. A lot of the things that we see today are variations of older diets that have been around for centuries. And that was surprising to me. I was surprised to see all of the different diets out there and to highlight a few of them. And, and moreover, it was interesting to dive deeper into some of those diets from the early 1800s and what they thought a good way to lose some weight was. So I hope you learned something from this today. Again, personally, over the years, one of my favorite themes regarding food intake and diet has been moderation. I heard Michael Pollan once say on a, on a podcast episode that a good diet, good food intake could be described as follows. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So eat real food, don't overeat on it, and have a diet that consists of mostly plants, and you'll do okay. So thanks for joining me today on the Toasty Kettle Podcast, talking about fad diets. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend, and make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you have found the show, wherever you listen to the show. That really does help other people find the show. You can also go to ToastyKettle.com to find different recipes from vintage cookbooks from the 1700s and 1800s. You can also sign up to our newsletter, which will give you a weekly email with the podcast episode and that week's recipe in the email. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ToastyKettle. And let me know on social media if you have any other diets through history that you've heard of that you'd like to add, I'd love to hear about them. Thanks for listening.